Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Welcome back, everyone, to Remember What's Next. Welcome back, Rabbi Spiro. Um, we want to begin our uh, episode today with a bit of, um, just a bit of structure, because clearly, as we all know, there is a lot happening in Israel right now. Um, our thoughts and our prayers and our questions are all directed towards um, um, our families and our friends who are there. And um, we want to just sort of open this, though, if we're going to speak about what is a very inflamed situation and what is a very dangerous situation in many ways, we want to just have a certain amount of structure so that we can speak freely, um, but that we can be understood for what we're trying to do by speaking about it. So a couple things that Ken and I spoke about before we started this is, number one, um, there are going to be, there are multiple layers to this situation, um, which means it's very hard to cover it on one foot in one hour. Um, so taking into account that there are multiple layers and multiple things that are going on. So we're aware of that and we're going to do our best to bring in as much as we can. Um, that you cannot understand um, a conflict in the Middle East through a Western lens. We have ideological differences, we have religious differences, we have historical differences, right? You know, like Rabbi Spiro always says, like history in, in the West is like going back 200 years. History in the Middle East is going back thousands of years. So we have a very different perspective on the layers of meaning and, and what's going on. Um, and I also wanna mention that it's very hard to understand um, religious um, issues through a secular lens as well. Um, and that a lot of what we speak about, there are going to be parts of it that will be difficult, but we're going to do our best to hold. This is a complex situation that has many moving parts, and we're going to do our best to address as much as possible um, while maintaining, as we always do as Jews, our humanity and our desire to make the world a better place in some way. Um, so we're going to structure things like that. So if I can, I, I, if I missed anything, uh, Ken, you'll, you'll let me know. And, um, and I just want to reiterate again, for those of you who are joining us, um, that we are um, going to hold off on questions until the end. But if you do have questions or comments, um, please use the chat. And then once we finish recording the podcast, we will um, take all of your questions at the end. Okay. Those are our caveats. Welcome back, everyone. Um, okay, where should we start? Wow, where what did should I we miss? Start? It's like such a deep topic. Yeah, exactly. First of all, what you said is Ellie's very true. Um, I would say, though, not Western, but from an American Canadian perspective, because those are really new countries. Europe actually has some history right. that goes back quite a ways, even with Islam. So, right. uh, yes, the bigger problem is that being as, as, as ADD as we are today, 
um, in terms of as internet speed, I've noticed myself never being the most patient of people as the internet speed. I remember years ago when I first had dial up internet and it took like five minutes for a picture to download. <laughs> now, if a picture doesn't download in five seconds, I get like furious. You know? right. like you're but throwing we, your phone at the wall if that circle moves more than once. <laughs> but unfortunately, yeah, exactly. One of the biggest problems with dealing with the situation that you brought up is that we have been sort of programmed to want to have like a 30 second soundbite on TV to, to explain what's going on. Uh, and that is not the case. It's so many complex layers when you're dealing with the situation. There's the whole, you know, history of Israel's relationship with the Arabs, of which the Palestinian thing is a sub issue, of which Hamas is a sub issue in the Palestinian Authority. There is the issue of the, the, his, you know, the outlook of Islam on the world, you know, which people don't talk about. You can't talk about it, but it's extremely important to understand the Islamic worldview because it colors the whole situation. There's the, you know, the very long history of the Islamic worldview of Jews, which also colors the situation. There's, there's layer upon layer and, and, and it's just it's impossible like you said in one hour you can't even you can just scratch the surface but we we have to recognize that it takes a lot of patience to do this well and most people don't have that patience combine that with how terminology and language is being so distorted and misused today yes. now it is that certain segment of the world just changes completely changes the meaning of words Mm. And, 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 and you, whatever, into ways they were never meant to be twisted into. So, and, and terms are thrown around very loosely, like apartheid and occupation and racism. And, and, and not only that, like we were talking about before, there's certain sort of preconceived notions of reality that's like only white people are guilty of racist ideology, only they can be skewered. You know, these are things that are just simply not true. Right. Um, so it's right. As, as we know, there are many peoples in many different countries who are racist against people in their own countries, and it has nothing to do with colors of skin or, yeah. you know, that there's a lot of examples, as you've said before. So, yes. 100%. So, first of all, to begin with, to pull out of the conflict, you know, it has very little to do with what's going on in uh, Shimon Hatzadik, Sheikh Jarrah, you know, the neighborhood uh, which is north of Damascus Gate, which was historically a Jewish neighborhood until Jews were ethnically cleansed from that neighborhood uh, with the War of Independence. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't serve as a trigger, but we tend to microtize the issues, just as the whole Middle East conflict. You know, in the early years of Israel, it was teeny Israel, which is, you know, 10,500 square miles of territory. Uh, including the territories, the occupied territories, another loaded term, surrounded by 5.5 million square miles of Arab countries, which the analogy used to explain that is that Israel is the size, imagine a matchbox sitting on the sideline of a football field. That's the relationship of Israel vis-a-vis -vis the 22 states of the Arab League that have, you know, 300 million Arabs living in 22 states versus, you know, 6.9 million Jews living in something the size of New Jersey. Right. That conflict has gone through a metamorphosis from teeny Israel versus Goliath Arabs to the microtizing of the conflict to mighty Israel, the size of New Jersey versus Palestinians, another term that is used very loosely and not understood properly, uh, that we have become the Goliath and they have become the, the David. We're the occupiers. They're the indigenous. There's so many different layers of, of half-truth, untruth, or lack of historical perspective 
And then you throw on top of that the misuse of terminology, apartheid, occupation, uh, violation of international law, war crimes, and, and always having to somehow balance everything out, like somehow what Israel's doing in Sheikh Jarrah or trying to preserve art on the Temple Mount somehow is equivalent to Hamas now launching over a thousand missiles randomly, just, you know, civilian targets, which would be, if not for the Iron Dome, there would be literally thousands and thousands of Israeli casualties. Right. And by the way, the big winner in this is Hamas, because the reaction of Israel in that situation would be to turn Gaza into a, a parking lot with nothing taller than a foot high and no one left standing. And Israel, by the way, Israel could do that. That's another weird aspect. That, right. You know, that somehow this is a conflict of, it's not like the Cold War with, you know, we can't let it get out of control because mutually assured destruction. If Russia and America were directly face each other, they would nuke the world and the only thing right. left alive would be like this rats. Isn't Russia and America. <laughs> Yeah, Israel, Israel could literally, and I'm not exaggerating, end the conflict within a few hours. There will be nothing left of Gaza. Right. But an asymmetric war, and by the way, if Putin were the prime minister of Israel and we were Russia and not Jews, that's what it would be. Right. Just like what happened in Chechnya. Right. So there's so many different things going on here. It's almost impossible to know where it even begin. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell but, you, it's so interesting, too, because a lot of conversations lately have been around how to just describe Judaism in general, right? And this idea of Judaism as an ethno-religion, because there's so many people that are so confused about the idea that you can still be considered Jewish, but not believe in God. Like, what does that even mean? So are you really a religion? Are you a people? And so a lot of the... Um, uh, conversations around it today are you can't understand Judaism if you're not looking if you're looking through a lens of your religion yeah, meaning Christianity exactly. or Islam or something like that it won't make sense so Israel I think is very much the same you won't understand the layers of what's going on in Israel if you're looking at it through a Western lens through a secular lens through you know if you're not looking at all the layers you're not going to really understand what's going on yeah, and the point you're making is, is very true. By the way, our, our enemies and and and, and uh, detractors use that point, saying you Jews are a, a religion. You're not a people. You're from you're Slavic. You're from Poland, and we are we are Palestinian. We are we are Semitic. The term anti-Semite was created by a German Jew hater, Wilhelm Marr, in 1879 right. to make hatred of Jews sound more scientific and ethnic than religious. But in every dictionary in the world, it means it means hatred. Toward, and prejudice towards Jews and Jews alone. It's the only right. form of hatred of a people that has its own unique word to describe it, by the way. If you hate a black person, you're just a racist, you know? Um, but, but it's exactly the point. This even confuses it further because then it gives credence to somehow the notion that because the notion is somehow Jews are white people from Europe. Jews are not just white people. We, we are right. not a race because anyone can join. Um, and we come in all size, shapes, and colors. And we've lived, but well, we are a nation. We have a land, a language, and a history. The problem is for more time than we were in our homeland, which was a very long time, we were out of our homeland. I mean, there was a, there was a first and second commonwealth of 430 years and a 440-year period before that of judges and kings. So there was over, you know, almost 1,300 years of a continuous Jewish presence in the land of Israel. But because of being forced out of our land by other foreign invaders who had no right to be there, but that's how empires work. We ended up in diaspora, but that doesn't in any way detract from our legitimate claim as a nation with a common land language and history that we go back to the land of Israel. I always say Joshua 
brought the Jewish people into the land of Israel 1,900 years before Muhammad was even a thought in his mother's mind. Right. So, uh, you know, that's another piece of information. The only people who could claim to be more indigenous to the land of Israel than the Jewish people would be Canaanites, which is not right. an ethnicity. It's just seven different groups of people who occupied 31 city states. And they disappeared two and a half, 2,700 years ago during the Assyrian invasion of the land of Israel. By the way, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the reality of facts on the ground today that there's a large Arab population living in the land of Israel, be they Israeli Arabs or Palestinians, by the way, same exact people, there's no difference. There's, you know, <laughs> there's no ethnic difference, historical difference. It's just randomly maps drawn on, lines drawn on maps. That doesn't mean there still aren't issues that have to be dealt with today, 100%. But when you start from the position that Israel is, Jews are like not a people, they have no right to the land of Israel, the indigenous population of the Palestinians, Israel was put there by like the British during Zionism and they're residual, they're just one of the last residual pieces of colonialism oppressing an right. indigenous population. And then you start using words like apartheid. And so everything right. gets distorted and everyone just throws And then you're out starting the you're starting by poisoning the well. You're starting on a fallacy. So how are you going to get to the truth from there? So that's yeah. really challenging. And then there's a whole nother side of it, which you can't even talk about today, which is the Islamic worldview, which plays a massively huge role. So can uh, we and, talk and even, about that a little bit? Can we yeah, talk yeah. about what, you know, that even though this started with, like you said, micro pieces, it started with this 20 year old, you know, legal battle that's been going on around this neighborhood just outside of Jerusalem, um, which escalated and kind of came together with what's happening on top of the Temple Mount. Yeah. And now basically Hamas has stepped in and, you know, had their response. So how does this, do these things actually speak to each other? Or when we're dealing with Hamas launching rockets, is this part of a much bigger thing? Yeah, it's a perfect, it's a perfect storm of about 10 different things easily. And I could be missing 10 more. It's a, it's a right. combination of the reality of what's gone on in the Middle East and Israel the last 100 years, a combination of Islamic attitude, a combination of the politics between the Palestinian Authority, which just canceled their elections, and Hamas uh, wanting to represent themselves as the protector of Jerusalem and the holy sites for political reasons. It's a combination of this very issue of Jewish rights to live in parts of the land of Israel, which anywhere else in the world would be purely a legal issue but are, are politicized on an international level. No one else cares if the French are evicting some group of Moroccans from the suburb of Paris. There's not going right. to be a UN resolution on it. It's right. a combination of the fervor that always comes around the time of Ramadan, which is the holiest time of year for Muslims when they're on edge and they've been fasting all day long and they're feeling very mm. passionate, combined with the fact that oh, Jerusalem Day happened at the same time, combined right. with COVID restrictions, which limited the number of people they wanted sitting at Damascus Gate because they didn't want large gatherings of people people there and yadda and it just like it's right. unbelievable like conflagration of everything coming in there but um we can maybe pick some of the parts apart we already started to by just smashing the the the, the, the assumption that we're some sort of foreign occupier so given the fact that jews are the indigenous population and have rights here which doesn't by the way again preclude the notion that there are people who are living there since that's the way the world works you know um but that that takes away a lot of somehow the delegitimization of Israel's claim to the land of Israel and the right of Jews to live in places, you know, even neighborhoods where it was a straight legal issue. 
The solution is complicated, right. but you know, people forget that the Arab world ethnically cleansed all the Jews from it between 1940 and 1967, about three quarters of a million Jews, many of whom had been living in places like Iraq way before Islam or Arabs got to those places, when it was Babylonian. The Arabs are not Babylonians or Assyrians. Um, were ethnically cleansed, by the way, losing, no question in my mind, far more personal, public, and business property than the Palestinians who were displaced in the War of Independence. Right. Many of whom were displaced by the Arab armies telling them to get out of the way, some of whom were displaced by Israel, some of whom just fled a combat area because the Arab world refused to accept a Jewish state, even though the world voted to create one and partition the land. Had they accepted that in 19, November 29th, 1947, like we talked about? along with Israel, would have been born an Arab state, call it Palestine, call it whatever, but that would be no conflict in the first place. So you have to go back and- Right, because that was San Remo, where Syria came around and all of these different places were sort of put into place around the same time. So there's no reason that that wouldn't have been possible at that time. Yeah. So, so maybe let's look at the, how did Hamas get involved in this whole issue? And what does this mean about what you're saying? Because what you're talking about is the Arab slash Muslim, which aren't yeah. always the same, Arab slash Muslim um, attitude towards Israel and the Jewish people. And how does this play into what's going on right now? Yeah. So before we get to Hamas, we have to rewind the tape and think to a basic course on Islamic worldview and a little history of Islam, which is super important to understand in terms of making, be even beginning to try and make sense. There's a, there's, a, there's a sociologist, he's no longer alive. His name is Raphael Patai. He wrote some very famous books, uh, The Jewish Mind, The Arab Mind. He tries to go into, because much of what, and you said correctly, Ellie, that we tend to use the word Arab and Muslim interchangeably. While it's true that Islam began as a religion of the nomadic Arabic speaking people, which is the broadest definition of Arab, of the Arabian Peninsula 1300 years ago, mm -hmm. it has spread and is the fastest growing religion until today in the world to the, to the point where now, while almost all Arabs are Muslims, even though the earliest Christian communities are in the Middle East, the vast majority of Muslims are not Arabs. Only you know thirty percent of Muslims are Arabs. Seventy percent are not. Indonesia is the largest Islamic nation. I mean, albeit it took another seven hundred years from the start of Islam till it got out to those places. But the, the we have to understand that you know that because Islam is a product of the Arab mind as a religion, it will just as Judaism reflects the Jewish personality in much of the way you know Jews are and how the religion expresses itself and the nation, the nation expresses itself being an ethno religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so too, those peoples that adopted Islam will take upon themselves certain worldviews that even are, are pre-Islamic. This is what Raphael Patai points out. He said the three things that the Arab pre, you know, nomadic Arab tribe pre who were pagans, by the way, before they became monotheistic Islam Muslims, um, they obsessed on were honor, power, and the sexual fidelity of their women. And when immediately be thinking about that, that makes that explains so much about dealing with how you deal with Arabs, how they deal with you, how they perceive you. Um, Meaning, like you know, those are key elements of their operating yeah. system yeah, yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. of what they feel are some of the most important um, factors to creating like their worldview. For instance, perception of power is such a huge thing, such a huge thing. Um, like in, the, in look at negotiations in Western negotiations, you offer something up as a sign of good faith mm -hmm. in Middle Eastern negotiations, offering something up as a sign of weakness 
you demand. Hmm. You make exaggerated demands, which is why you notice why Westerners negotiating with the Arab mentality, the Middle Eastern mentality, you try and, I always tell people, go to the Shuk, go to Jerusalem, the Shuk, spend an hour trying to buy a, a backgammon set, and you'll learn more about the Arab mind and Middle East peace negotiations than four years at Georgetown School of Foreign Policy, which means when you're confronting in a confrontational situation, you know, you got to come across as being really strong and tough. They respect that. They respect tough. But if you disrespect them because honor is such a huge thing, then they'll be having this blood feud with you for a thousand years. You know, it's, it's like I have border patrol friends of mine who served in like special units. They said, when you go into even if a terrorist runs into an Arab's house, a guy, a Bedouin guy's house and takes his daughter hostage, no way in the world do you go into that bedroom and be alone with that woman. Even though you're going to rescue her, you know, because <laughs> because you're a guy's alone because they're so obsessed with the sexual fidelity of their women. So these things play into perception of power being bombastic when they speak. And even how Arabs talk to each other. I remember when a friend of mine was a Lebanese, Jewish Lebanese guy, he used to go to the Shuk and he would see these Arabs and they go, they go, keep fighting like Alhamdulillah, they're going on for like five minutes. I said, what are we talking about? We're just saying hello. You know, like, you know, Jews are very direct when they, we, we talk to each other. The Japanese, Arabs, they're extremely indirect. They never say exactly what they think, but this is a cultural thing. But then you throw on top of that. And what I'm going to say now is it's not PC. I know you can't talk about Islam, but this is basic Islamic worldview. And why is it so important to understand? Because it colors how the Arab Islamic world and the Islamic world in general looks at the world, looks at their destiny, looks at non-Muslims. Islam being a deterministic worldview which they got from Judaism, and it was a God who acts in history, believes just as the Jews that history is moving towards a destination, world living at peace under God, messianic era, you know, that kind of thing. They believe the whole world that, you know, Moses, the Jews got it wrong, the Christians got it wrong, Muhammad got it right, and he's the final prophet. So right. everyone should accept him. He's the seal of the prophets. Rasul right. Allah, he's the friend of he's the friend of Allah. And so, um so base so really basic replacement theology like all the ones that came before are now null and void we are the real idea yeah. of god in the world and and now if you want to be connected with god you have to do it through us so that's and one right. part of it right and jews and christians you know they blew it and they're wrong and not only that they believe in not just like judaism doesn't believe in the physical or spiritual conquest of the world you as someone who's a jew by choice knows they make it hard and we don't right. conquer anything and build empires. The only Jewish empire in history has been Hollywood, and it wasn't a source of Jewish values. Um, Christians, by the way, do not believe in the physical conquest of the world as a religious imperative. Before someone yells about it, it doesn't mean many Christian leaders and kings, like you know, his most Ferdinand, his most Catholic Majesty in the name of Jesus Christ, didn't seize and pillage much of, of the Western Hemisphere. But it's not a Christian theological illegal imperative to do so. They do right. believe in proselytizing and converting, sending people to missionize the, you know, the, the dark natives of other countries and whatever. Right. Islam believes in the religious and even more so in the physical conquest of the world as a religious imperative. Now, it's the let's, idea that just, the let's just put a caveat in because we are talking about general ideas and ideology, yeah. not yeah. people. There are many people who are Jewish who are moderate, Christian who are moderate, Islamist who are moderate. I just wanna put that caveat in yeah. before somebody jumps in and says, well, you care, you blah, blah, blah. We are talking about the ideology, so we understand it at its foundations. We also understand that people are people and people are different. So 
Yeah, 100%. We're talking about not Muslims, we're talking about Islam. And right. we'll talk about it later in terms of Christians and Christianity and the process that these things have gone through, 100%. I'm talking about the basic Islamic theology. As it's turned into practice, obviously varies tremendously, different periods of time in different places in the Islamic world. Um, but they believe that since the world is destined to become what's called Dar al-Islam, the world of Islam, that until that time, it's going to be divided into two different parts, the world of Islam, where the whole world is either Muslim or lives under Islamic uh, rule with Sharia, which is Islamic law, being the legal framework. Remember, Islam, like Judaism, unlike Christianity, which doesn't have a legal framework, Islam has madrasim, like a bit midrash, and they have a legal framework. And just like in Judaism, where there's no separation in halakha, between temporal law, like all laws of property, marriage, damages, ownership, you name it, and spiritual law, kosher, Shabbat, it all falls under the purview of halakha. So too, Sharia is the exact same thing. They have a court system, they have schools where they learn their law, but the whole world is supposed to be one giant Ummah, Islamic nation, where the whole world is supposed to be living under Dar islam using Sharia. Until that time is reached, the world will be divided into Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, and Dar al-Kharab. Kharab is like the Hebrew word kharab, which means sword. And the world of war, the world of the infidel. And by what means is Dar al-Kharab, the world of the infidel, brought into Dar al-Islam? The term is jihad. Now, jihad is, has multiple meanings. You know, it could be jihad of al you know, struggle. It means struggle, which could be internal struggle like the Jewish people have, you know, between the good evil, the good and bad inclinations to try and connect to God or be pulled the other way. But as it is used generally, when talked about as a, as a political tool or, or in, used in powerful speeches, it means external struggle. To bring Dar al-Kharab, the world of war, the world of the non-Muslim, that, that's a category that includes several different groups of people, into Dar al-Islam. And that's something you're supposed to do. So Islam has been from its inception very much into expansion, physical expansion. If, if, and, and like Ephraim Karsh wrote a great book called Islamic Imperialism. We talks about how Islam as a faith has, has acted very much like an empire, albeit under different rulers, but has been very into expanding. And since the time of Muhammad in the seventh mm. century, and he dies in 632, from the 150 years, especially after his death, Islam saw an incredibly rapid expansion into areas that were non-Islamic. The Persian That's Empire. That's so interesting that you say empire, because then you get a sense of, okay, so the Roman Empire was an expansionist empire. It was one of the purposes of Rome was to expand its hold. So that helps understand what, where does, you know, that that's not an unusual ideology in um, history. So it, it, yeah. it's just simply part of what it is. It's not a judgment call. It's just a fact. It is, but, it, but, but it's interesting that it's associated with a religious ideology and a justification as religious. Right. As opposed to, you know, the famous the military dispatch of Julius Caesar. I mean, Rome had a state religion, but he never used it to justify conquest. It was just wenny witty wiki. I came, I saw, I conquered. I'm strong, you're weak, you know, <laughs> I'm powerful, you're not, you don't like it, I kill you. Right. It's in that it's the way of powerful, you know, movements, be they political or peoples, to expand and move around. And that's the way it works. Hmm. Put that on top of another piece of basic Islamic worldview, which is being a legalistic faith, it defines the status of non-Muslims into two big categories, which are well worth everyone listening, doing a little homework on. One is pagans. Pagans are not tolerated in Islam. Um, you have a choice, you know, convert, become a slave or die. But non-Muslim monotheists, like of whom Jews and Christians fall into that category, 
right. uh, Zoroastrians, you know, whatever. The, the, by the way, the Muslims, you know, the, the term used for the people of the book, which is referred to Jews, was actually an Islamic term referring to Jews and Christians who had the Bible. They have a status of dhimmi, which is D-H-I-M-M-I. Dimitude is a very interesting status, which is often misrepresented as sort of a protected people, but it really is a second-class person. It is much closer to the concept of apartheid as we understand it, right. which is, even if we move into your country, like Islam appears in the Middle East and takes over what is the land of Israel, albeit not from Jews at the time, because we were already expelled, but there was a Jewish community living in Israel in the seventh century in 638, Omar ibn al-Khattab conquers, you know, and for the next 1300 years, as we mentioned previously, that different Islamic, not necessarily Arab dynasties are going to control all of what is Israel and Jerusalem, but now they've absorbed the new group of people. And this particular people, it happens to be in Israel at the time, were a mix of Jews and Christians. Mm -hmm. Dimitude is a second-class citizen status. Because you believe in one God, you're not a pagan, so we don't kill you. You know that We're not supposed to force you to convert either, by the way, which is also being misused by, by Muslims who I don't believe are properly quoting Islam, which doesn't believe in forced conversion. Doesn't mean it hasn't been done, but it doesn't believe in it. Um, but because you're a second-class citizen, you could practice your faith, but you have to, you're subject to any number of discriminatory legislation, which were often practiced quite harshly and sometimes ignored, depending upon the Islamic dynasty. For instance, you have to pay a special tax, a jizya, which is a poll tax paid every year in a very humiliating way. Um, one of the main reasons that people like Ephraim Karsh think that a lot of people converted to Islam was not out of a desire to accept the true faith, but out of a desire to escape the crushing poll tax. And uh, one of the reasons why Islam maybe was more interested in physical conquest and spiritual conversion could have come out of the realization that they're making far more money out of taxing non-Muslims living amongst them than mm -hmm. having them convert and then losing that tax base. You have to pay this crushing poll tax. You have to wear a special sign or a badge. The Christians didn't. The yellow star that the Jews made did not, you know, or the little circle you had to wear in medieval Europe. The Muslims introduced it first and used it against Christians and Jews. You know, you you had to step into the, the gutter when a Muslim was walking on the sidewalk. You couldn't be on an animal and be hired. You couldn't bear arms in the presence of a Muslim. You couldn't employ Muslims as servants. You couldn't testify in court against a Muslim. If, you're, if your church or synagogue was allowed to be built, it had to be built either subterranean or semi-subterranean to show its inferiority to Islam, which explains why some of the synagogues in the old city are semi-subterranean. The street level has risen somewhat, but also they were not allowed to be built higher than mosques. Now, did all Muslim regimes and, and dynasties follow that? Not necessarily. Umayyad Spain, 8th to 11th centuries, uh, were extremely tolerant of Christians and Muslims, and it was a great symbiotic relationship, which led to the golden right. age of Spain and, and Umayyad Spain becoming the center of culture and, 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 and innovation in so many ways. The Islamic world early on, because it was more open and more tolerant and far more open and tolerant than the Christian world was in medieval Europe, which was right. violent and nasty. So uh, um, when they were chilled and open, it was great. Now, there was a, there's a great book um, by David Price Jones called The Closed Circle. And he talks about what happened with the Islamic world in the last thousand years is they became less open, more closed, more reactionary. So the basic theology of Islam, the way I say it, it's not PC, but I'm, I say it all the time. I say there, there's, there are definitely moderate Muslims. The vast majority of human beings on this planet just want to live and let live, Muslims included. But their Islam as a basic theology is immoderate. And it can be also twisted, bent, and interpreted in ways that are extremely extreme to incredible levels of violence like what you saw with Daesh. 
you know, with these guys, you know, beheading people in remarkably cruel and creative ways, which I'm sure many Islamic clerics would be horrified at forced conversions, what was done to people, you know, so right. it, this is not, this is not necessarily mainstream Islam either, but the potential to take that right. faith, which unlike Christianity, by the way, which has gone through a period, you know, you go from medieval Europe, deeply, darkly Christian and superstitious and violent, especially towards Jews, right. and then going through the Renaissance, where they opened up to the more classical humanistic knowledge, and then the enlightenment, and now I think they wish, I wish they were more Christian, but they went through an evolutionary process, which has made Christianity of today far more open, or the, the world that was originally Christian, right. which is Europe, far more open and tolerant, I think too open in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, than it was a thousand years ago. The Islamic world has done the opposite, and the vast majority of the Islamic world has become more radicalized. Mm -hmm. um, what's also interesting is the, you know, traditionally the Christian view of Jews was very bad because Jews are guilty of some of the worst things possible. We killed Jesus, who's God's son who fights with God, the devil, the Jew is the devil. Jews have been traditionally viewed in Christianity as physically threatening. Mm. They killed God. They will poison your wells. They will steal your children, use their blood to bake matzah. They will control the world's economy. Islam right. never viewed that. Muhammad in, interacted with Jews in his early years of expansion. He fought battles against, there was many, 90% of the Jews in the world were living in the Middle East when Islam was starting out. He had a lot of interactions, most of them negative and hostile towards Jews who refused to accept him as a prophet. And Jews were crushed and beaten. Read about Haibar and all these different things you have to know to understand the Islamic attitude towards Jews. But unlike Christianity, which viewed Jews as being physically threatening and well-poisoning and power-hungry, controlling evil people who were in conspiracy to run the world, Islam viewed Jews as being intellectually smart, but very deceptive. They're weak because we always beat them in battle. They're weak, but they're deceptive. And that was more or less the attitude, which explains, by the way, the Arab world shock in 48 when Israel managed to survive the War of Independence right. and end up with more territory and bigger shock in 67. Right. But then along comes the Mufti, Haj al-Min al-Husseini, the British appointed Mufti in, you know, in the 20s, who is an ally of Hitler, who brings into the Arab mind, this is what rising Arab nationalism came along with this perfect storm of importing all the Nazi anti-Semitism, which basically morphed out of medieval Christian anti-Semitism of demonization of the Jew as a subhuman evil devil. And that starts to poison the Arab mind collectively. So it's very, so you very see two totally toxic. different Jew hating ideologies suddenly coming together in one nasty brew. Exactly. Is, so Hitler's ideologies get inserted into Arab hostility or Muslim hostility towards Jews. And suddenly you have something really nefarious. And by the way, you'll see today, Europe will accuse Jews of too much power and control and the, 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 you know, the hard right will accuse Jews and look at George Soros, he controls everything. Uh, but Arab TV will show something that is uniquely Christian. They have blood libel movies of like, the, they show in Arabic TV, like serialized, the Jew, the, the, before Passover, this Arab, this kid disappears. And before long, you have this Arab actor dressed as a Jew offering up matzah made from the dead non-Jew kind of stuff. So you have this poisoning the Arab attitude, throw on top of that the, you know, by the way, we have to pull back once more and understand that the creation, if you look at those two things, what becomes Islamic is never allowed to go back to being non-Muslim from their worldview, meaning the world is moving towards the whole world accepting Islam, and that Jews who are dhimmi are always supposed to be under the thumb of Muslims. 
then on a theological level, the existence of a Jewish state is extremely problematic. Just as the in Catholic the Church- In the middle of the Middle East. Yeah, how could it be? This was for 1300 years, Dada Islam, and now it's back to Jews. And not only that, Jews rule, albeit in a democracy where the Arabs live in the only democracy in the Middle East, that still doesn't change on the deepest theological level, the inability of the Arab world to accept a Jewish state of any size, even if it's the size of this, you know? That's a huge point, which is never looked at when you microtize the conflict to Israel versus the Palestinians and only what's happened in the last 100 years, then you lose the perspective of the broader Arab Islamic view, which is the original right. conflict, is the Arab world versus teeny Israel, not just the Palestinians. And when you take out all the theology behind it, you don't understand that deeply ingrained in the collective consciousness of the people who we're dealing with. And I'm not saying all Arabs are like this. You look what happened in the last few years, when during, especially when, when Trump was president with all these like UAE and all these countries that have come to grips with it. It's not uniquely the Arab world, by the way, Ellie. You know, the, the Catholic Church viewed the destruction of it, the temple. They, they, you know, they, they reread it after it happened because Christianity comes along three centuries later. But no, it wasn't destroyed because the Jews rebelled against Rome. It was destroyed because the Jews rebelled against God and killed his son. And God punished them by destroying his temple, which isn't needed anyway, because the only sacrifice you have to believe in is Jesus, he died for your sins, and he threw the Jews out of the land of Israel as punishment. And therefore, and they want the only reason they continue to survive, we know it's because God never gives up on us, but they invented this whole doctrine of te teste veritatis, witness people, that the Jew will wander the earth as the cursed, you know, the Jew, uh, perfidious Jew, which was in, in Catholic liturgy up until 1965. Right. There's a curse, you read it mass against the Jew until Jesus comes the second time and then the perfidious Jew will finally recognize that he's the Messiah. But that prevented on a theological level, the Catholic church from establishing diplomatic relations with Israel until Pope mm. John Paul, who was the greatest Pope right. in terms of dealing with Jews ever right. in 2000 was able to somehow get around that theologically and call Judaism, you know, Christianity's older brother, and somehow squeeze it into. Now, parts of the Arab world clearly have come to terms with the existence of the Jewish people and accepting the fact that it can has a place in the Middle East. They're not illegitimate. It's funny these Bedouin tribes living in you know the, out of the Arabian Peninsula that Israel made peace with are the ones who have done it the easiest, largely because they don't have it. They're not our neighbors, and they don't have a history of fighting with us. Right. They're all the way out there. Right. Um, and they also have Bedouin culture, which has a lot of positive sides to it, by the way. You know, we have a lot and of trouble. And also with it would seem it would depend on their, um, you know, their, their affiliation with the Muslim ideology rather than, you know, Arab Christians or Arab Zoroastrian, like whatever their, their religious ideology is, would also play into as Arabs, whether or not they would be able to sit with the idea of there being a Jewish state. Yeah, um, exactly. In the, cr in the cradle of what's seen as the Middle East. But you're right, 100%. And, but there's a bigger picture going on, which has how much the Arab world is fragmented or the Islamic right. world is fragmented. That picture is also completely misunderstood mm -hmm. that there's a, a Sunni-Shiite split, which happened in 681 at the Battle of Karbala, which is in today Iraq. And Sunnis, in, I mean, the majority of the Arab world is Sunni, like 80, 85%. By the way, we... People, the West tends to view the Shiites as being the more extreme. Sunni view themselves as the Orthodox Muslims and the Shiites like the reform guys. But these guys hate each other's guts. There's a huge right. power play going on in the Middle East between Islamic states. The biggest, some of the biggest players are not Arabs. In the Sunni world, there's a there's like this going on between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, which is the most populous Arab state, and now the total Islamist guy who I can't stand, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. 
who's trying to reestablish like the Ottoman Empire. And then you have the great Shiite power of Iran with the, with the Ayatollahs, who since 1979, you know, when, when they threw out the Shah and took over again, they sort of jump-started the jihad idea all over again. Islam, think about it, with the rise of with Europe going through, you know, in the Crusades, which, by the way, was a reaction to Islamic expansionism. It drives me nuts when people talk about no wonder the Arab world so angry at the West. I'm sorry. Islam crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, conquered Spain for 700 years. The only reason they didn't conquer all of Europe was in, in 732 at the Battle of Poitiers. You know, Charles Martel, Charlemagne's father, kept the Muslims from crossing the Pyrenees. And that, otherwise, they would overrun Europe. They already overran. They, are, they overran in 1453 the Eastern Christian Empire. So right. Crusades, as crazy as these guys and violent as they were, and, and much worse they were to the Jews than the Arabs who lived in Jerusalem. They were, you know, it was it was largely a reaction to. This is a much deeper issue, but um, there's a huge power struggle going on in the Arab Islamic world since mm -hmm. Europe emerged from the dark ages and industrialized and democratized and got the technological technological edge they have had the Arab world under their thumb they're the ones who colonized the Middle East like they colonized the Far East mm -hmm. right but with the rise of the Shiite power of Iran and they're really extreme they've taken the most radical interpretation they believe the idea of jihad is 100% a Shiite jihad they don't want to just take over the West they want to overthrow Sunni. And there's a big power struggle. And Israel happens to be largely the battleground for, you know, and the relationship with Israel, much of these interesting relationships between the different mm. Sunni powers duking it out for who's going to be in charge, whether it's going to be Saudi Arabia primarily, or, or you know, who they hate Turkey and Saudi Arabia, hate each other's guts. Right. So in places like, you have proxy wars going on in places like Syria and Iraq now that people don't understand. That as much as you know, Western powers are in there trying to get rid of you know, Saddam Hussein and the Taliban. Trust me, these Sunni and Shiite groups and their subgroups and the subgroups of the subgroups are duking it out. And much of what's going on now in Israel is a power struggle, which has made very interesting bedfellows. The fact that Sunni Hamas is, is being supported by Shiite Iran. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask. So how does that unusual. work? It's like so my enemies. Unusual. It's like my enemy's enemy is my friend because Sunni Palestinian Authority, which would be out of power had not the Palestinian Authority, uh, in two thousand and six, basically not accepted the elections. Hamas would have been uh -huh. power in, in, in Judea and Samaria, which the so West. are both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority Sunni. Yeah. Okay. And do Sunnis and Shiites have differing views on Jews or they're basically on the same page in terms of that? It's basically the same page. Okay. Basically the same so page. So now the difference Sunnis, being, sorry, yeah, go ahead. There's a difference being the Shiite regimes of today. I think there are more, there are more moderate, the, the regimes that are moderate and have peace with Israel are all Sunni regimes. The Shiites would be more moderate, but I thought no, Iran. No, 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 in terms of their, I'm saying from the Islamic perspective, Shiites are viewed as the reformers who broke away from authentic Islam. Got it. The most extreme version is Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. That's extreme Sunni, like almost fanatical worldview. But the more extreme regimes that are jihading and doing more tend to be, although Daesh was Sunni. Daesh guys, you know, the, ISIS, the, the right? ISIS, ISIS, those guys were Sunni. They were, that's, that's, that was a unique example of really the most heart hardcore happened to be Sunni, but generally speaking, Iran, which is the head of the snake for jihad and international terrorism, is a hardcore right. regime, which generally backs 
uh, other Shiites like Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon is happens right. to be, and Lebanon was such a delicate balance, which was destabilized by these people, um, by the Palestinians actually in 1975. But uh, that's a natural alliance. Because so Hezbollah Iran, is Shiite. And, and, and Hezbollah is Shiite, Iran is Shiite. So trying to expand their power, their influence and destroy the ultimate evil, which they view as Israel. I mean, you can see the attitude of, of, of the attitude of Iran, whereas 70 years ago, the whole Arab world was talking about exterminating the Jews. This is not conversation you hear coming out of, you, know, you hear it in the Arab street in places like Egypt and in places like uh, Jordan, but you don't hear the the, the leadership of these countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, they're not talking about exterminating the Jewish state. As a matter of fact, we work with them and we have all kinds of economic cooperation and strategic deals because my enemy's right. enemy is my friend. That what really scares the crap out of people like the Saudis are, are like the, the Houthis backed by you know Iran and and the and all the and the and the Iranians themselves. So there's a massive proxy war being played out. And part of that is what's going on now with you know, there's supposed to be elections. You know, Abbas is in like the 15th year of his four-year term. There haven't been any Palestinian Authority elections since 2006. They keep, you know, the Palestinian Authority is a very corrupt institution, and they know that they're going to do really badly in the next elections. And they just are supposed to have elections now, using the pretext that Israel wouldn't allow ballots. And by the way, Israel didn't ban voting for, of, of, it's an excuse. Israel wouldn't allow ballots in Jeru East Jerusalem, which is the Arab side of town, because a third of the population of Jerusalem are Arabs. They said, we can't have the elections. But it was just another delaying tactic to put off the inevitable. So just as Saddam Hussein in 1990 went and shot Scud missiles at, the, at Israel, the 42 missiles to show that he's the protector of the Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem and he's defender of the Palestinians who the rest of the Arab world doesn't care about. You know, this is Hamas is trying to uh, show its, you know, flex its, show its relevance and make a play for internal Palestinian popularity by showing that we, we're, we're, we're going to stand up and fight. And if you put that together with this Arab thing of being tough and macho, and showing who's boss, which is extremely prevalent, especially on the Arab street amongst the Shabab, right. the youth, who are the ones who are rioting everywhere. By the way, not just the, not just the Palestinians who are non-Israeli citizens. You see this in all the towns in Israel now. The that the the traditional mechanism of you know of the of of the you know the local the imam the local guy in the village running this and the breakdown of authority. Lack, even though the traditional Arab way of life, they're much more traditional people than Westerners, but nonetheless, the parental, the paternal authority structure that exists in the Arab Islamic world is broken down significantly, especially in places like Israel. These, these, these teenagers are running loose on the streets, doing incredible amount of violence. They are teenagers who are idealistic, energetic, violent, and easily Islamicized. Combine that with something we left out, which is huge, social media. Social media, now you can reach, you know, you can, you can, you can radicalize people very easily. They're being fed, combined, by the way, with the fact that both UNRWA schools, the UN-run schools, Palestinian Authority schools, Hamas schools are all preaching at an early age incredible demonization and hatred of Jews and delegitimization of the Jewish people as being foreign, as this, the children of monkeys, pigs, and dogs, and right. training kids to want to blow themselves up. The level of hatred is unbelievable. So when you, when you raise children who are not intrinsically racist and evil to hate someone from birth, and then you put them in a situation of desperation that is of their own making, because the only reason why it's not peace and prosperity uh, in the Middle East is because of the Arabs rejecting the, the Jewish people. It's a vicious circle. 
right. mean, think about it. If it's not arms, just, well, it's not even yeah. just a vicious circle. It seems like it's an eight-sided chessboard. Yeah. And all of these, everyone is moving, and, and but you're but the media portrays it as checkers. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or it's, it's a like cycle. It's yeah. You just got to do yeah. this, do this, do that. These two sides will figure it out, and then it'll be done. But it it literally is like an eight-sided chessboard where every single side is playing for its exactly. agenda, and it's all of each move and counter move, and you have to see it that way. Otherwise, you won't understand what's going on. And if you try to simplify it, you'll get it wrong. Right, exactly. So Israeli Arabs are cheering, possibly, in places like Lud when missiles are hitting Tel Aviv. Believe it or not, some of them are. Uh, not all of them, of course, but some of them are. And the, meanwhile, the Palestinian authorities probably making very strident statements about how evil Israel is for what it's doing on the Temple Mount in Sheikh Jarrah. Meanwhile, the, Arab, the Palestinian street, probably in the territories that, that the PL, Palestinian Authority controls, is probably cheering on Hamas and sincerely the majority supporting them. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Authority is saying, oh my God, I so hope that Israel bombs Hamas into oblivion, right. because if they don't, we're going to lose here big. Right. So it's so complicated. But then you and have how, again. This, how do you think yeah. this is also going to affect? Because we're also in another bout of Israeli elections. How is this going to also play into the Israeli side of things? Because well, that's also clearly into account. Yeah, well, it already played into it because the minority center and left-wing government that was going to have the backing of the moderate, the more moderate Arab side, which means they would never, the Arab parties wouldn't be in the coalition, but they would, from the outside, uh, in any votes that could topple the government, side with them. Now, there's no way. First of all, they, they're taking a more strident stand. There's no way we could join any Israeli government. Look what they're doing. And um, the whole move on the street in Israel, rightfully so, when they see you know thousands of missiles being launched, like last night, it was amazing how many missiles they shot at Tel Aviv in five minutes, like 50 of them. Who's ever the more right wing? Who's ever the more right wing would get a, will get a will get a boost. I don't right. think it would change much. Though. I think we'd still be locked into the same situation. Right. But it's also not a cycle of violence. I hate this cycle of violence. Israel never started a conflict with any of its Arab neighbors. Israel never starts the violence. It's always the Arab world, the, the root of the cause of the Arab world, and now the Palestinian authorities or, or Hamas's inability to accept a Jewish state of any size. That you think about it, if these people had any brains, they never lose an opportunity to lose an opportunity. The Arab world would say, the whole Arab world would say, and, and those Arabs living next to us would say, are you kidding? We got the Jews living amongst us. These people, pound for pound, square inch for square inch, are the most creative, driven, dynamic people in human history. They got 22% of all the Nobel Prizes since 1901, and they're only 0.2% of the world's population. Come on. They, they're, they're, they got more startup going on here than anywhere in the world outside Silicon Valley and more per capita than anywhere else. We're gonna, And we got like all this oil-free energy and lots of inexpensive labor. We'll let them like create everything and let it run it and manage it. And we'll manufacture it. We'll have all these trade zones and industrial parks in the whole Middle East. Right. And then all ships it. rise together. They offered it in 48. They offered it in 67. They offered it in 2000. We'll even give up territory that you have no historic right really to. Okay, you're here already. So we'll give you a place to live. But you're saying, no, we don't accept it. We want more. We don't accept your right to exist, which is ridiculous. It's like you beating someone into the ground and then them saying, I'm not going to get up until you apologize to me. <laughs> it's like crazy. So they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. It's so disastrous. And the internal politics of what's going on within is, is only drawing out this conflict even worse and worse because no one, no one side is in a position. Throw on top of that a very basic point of history, which has nothing to do with Arabs. All totalitarian regimes, can, this is the basis of the book 1984 by George Orwell. 
can only stay in a position of power when they can justify their existence, their oppression, and their lack of creature comforts and high standard of living by saying we're at war with a greater en en enemy. Right. We got to demonize this scapegoat out there. This is why when the Soviet Union, when Gorbachev ended the Cold War, the Soviet Union mm -hmm. collapsed. That's it. It has no raison d'être. Arafat right, so himself as, as said, long as, as long as Iran continues to say that America and Israel are the enemies of the world, no one turns around and says, well, you're also like starving yeah, yeah. people. You're, and yeah, you're unhappy, your economy. Yeah, you're, yeah right. exactly. You're, and and Jews, have always been history's, Jews have always been history's biggest scapegoat, and Israel's a great scapegoat. But go beat up Jews, go hate Israel, go. It's, it's unbelievable how how destructive it is. And it just led to this, not a cycle, but an endless cycle of them saying no, demonizing us and doing tremendous damage to their own people. Right. And they're the only ones responsible for it. But rather than take responsibility, it's much easier to blame Israel. And they got one final great benefit. They can build on anti-Semitism because right. much of the world backs them. Anyone with any objective person looking at the situation, if the world were to say, Trump started doing this, by the way, like grow up already. We're not going to keep some bailing you out, paying money to your school so they can treat, teach hate. We're going to make you offers to get your act together. And um, trust me, I can, you want to have peace in the Middle East? Have the European Union, have the UN, which is a useless organization. That's what it stands for, useless nothing. Say to the Palestinians, guys, guys, come on. You started every conflict. You're the ones who began it. Get, Israel's willing to compromise. They've done it multiple times. You've said no every time. Grow up. Life is about compromise. In the words of the great rabbi, Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Right. And, and these people with best symbiotic relationship in history is you living side by side with them. And we're not all going to like back you when you would throw missiles at them and try and equivocate that what Israel is doing by targeting missiles in Gaza is the same thing as you launching thousands of missiles randomly right. into civilian populations. We're going to stop all that. We are going to hold you accountable and tell you to grow up. And it'll be the biggest favor that the world would do for the Arabs and the Palestinians if they really cared about them. Instead of keeping and, them and as I a think it's also, you know, the, the pain of it is, my gosh, the potential of what could be. And that's it's always so, the, so the most painful part. So it's I so wanted sad. to say, like, before we before we wrap up, because we're remember what's next. So based on ancient history and even modern history, where do you think the next few days are going to take us in the next few weeks? What is this going to look like? How will this will this resolve? Where do you, what do you think, in your opinion, based on, on history and patterns, what, do you, what are we looking at for the next couple of weeks in Israel? Um, no, I don't think, I think what's going to happen is um, the, you know, Israel has to exact a certain price from Hamas and Hamas has to feel, even though the thank us, the Iron Dome, they have to feel they've done enough so they can show videos to, for people for internal consumption that they've, they've showed those Jews. The, you know, the children of monkeys, pigs and dogs, who's boss here, you know, which is kind of a joke. But uh, when both sides, Israel needs to feel what is, you know, Israel is not going to go through with this, you know, ground invasion and put Hamas out of business because that opens up Pandora's box of now what are you going to do, reoccupy Gaza? It's a very complicated right. situation. Right. So I think it's when, when Israel feels that it's done enough damage to Hamas that we've taught them a lesson, when Hamas feels that they can, like, going back to their Islamic idea of honor, and, and we, we can we can feel that even though we really oh, lost big face. and we caused mil billions of dollars of damage to Gaza and a lot of people killed us, but we've, we've showed those Zionists and we have enough footage of missiles launching, then it's going to quiet down again. This is all going to pass, but it's not going to go away because, you know, looking at the biggest picture of all is 
is you know what what keeps what keeps Jews what keeps you know notice now all the internal arguing in Israel is now gone and everyone's behaving yeah. properly and no one's honking and everyone's waiting quietly in line because we're at war again. Um, you know the external pressure is designed to get us to recognize what our priorities are and there's no end game. The big the, the real end game is when we have to get our act together and create a Jewish state that's the way it's supposed to be as a light to nations and then the Arab world will not only stop attacking us they'll line up behind us it's very interesting to end on a nice positive thought when even though the grandfather of the Arabs and Islam is Ishmael he is the he is the half brother he's our brother from another mother but he's the older brother who should have been the firstborn who should have been the Jewish people is bypassed by Abraham picking Isaac over him so he really, that's an interesting conversation, by the way, to have, I have yeah. a whole presentation on the metaphysical roots of the Middle East conflict. Right. Um, so he feels slighted. And until today, on the deepest level, he still is trying to show that he's more dedicated to God than we are and can be more sacrificing than we can be. But and the yet, Bible, there's a reason that the Torah mentions that the brothers bury their father together. Yeah, and, and it says, and it's, and it says, and it mentions him second, which is, you know, that Abraham and Yishmael comes along and he joins his brother, which means in the end of days, ultimately, we'll put our differences aside. Right. Because the reality is, is Jews, Christians and Muslims who can get, who can put the theological differences aside, which might be significant, realize that they actually have a ton in common. Right. A ton in common with each other in terms of their worldview, their spiritual worldview, their political worldview, their moral worldview. Um, uh, put that aside, then they realize that there's a lot they could be sharing and doing together. And if they just focus on being proactive towards their own people and creating proper Christians, Muslims, and Jews who are supposed to be role models, which is what all of monotheism is ultimately about, right. then we get a unified world. And ultimately, the scenario that Judaism paints is that the, they stop not, they not only stop attacking us, but they line up behind us and we work together with them to show them how, to, how, to, to how the world should run. And, uh, you know, one people, that's the Jewish messianic vision of a whole world, to perfect the world under the kingdom of God. When everyone gets along in peace and brotherhood, recognizing that we're all children of one God and we have, uh, we have tons in common and what separates all human beings genetically is like 0.1% of, of their material. And we got to focus on that instead of the ridiculous similar things that we argue over all the time. Let's hope we see it Amen. soon and in our Amen. days. Amen, amen, amen. So, um, you know, prayers and thoughts that everyone there should be safe and should be healthy and should be okay. Um, we will definitely pick this up again next week, which will be after Shavuot. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 